Fairly regularly, I receive letters like, uh, like this one. Hi, Wayne. Seeing the picture of you on Facebook this morning brought actual tears to my eyes. We miss you and all our friends at Frisco Bible so much. We have not been able to find a church here that comes even close to the church family we had there. We are still looking and praying diligently. God will show us where we should be. Now, that letter is about loss and waiting. Loss and waiting. Our brethren are enduring the loss of redeemed community. They are, they are going through the pain of waiting for a new home. And most of us have experienced those feelings. How many of you have ever moved? Raise your hand if you've ever moved. Okay, we can, we can understand how this is involved. Almost all of us struggle with, with waiting. I had a few suggestions for our dear friends, but before I wrote back, I started thinking about that letter. And I sat and thought for a minute, and I thought, waiting and loss, that's what they're going through. Isn't it fascinating how often those go together? In fact, they seem to tie in to a very similar emotional place, loss and waiting, waiting and loss. They, they really do go together. And so I was writing that down, and I was thinking about studying with you guys, and as I, as I was typing that sentence that I just said, that loss and waiting go together, I received a text message, a horrible text message. It was from my high school best friend, Todd. It was from his mom. She said, Wayne, Todd wanted you to know that he has today been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. We are waiting for a plan of action from the cardiologist. More loss, more waiting. Each is hard, right? Really hard. Just think about waiting as a regular pain of life. People suffer as they wait for school to end, right, kids? Yeah? Teachers, sorry. Uh, for love, waiting for marriage, waiting for children, waiting for a better job, waiting for any job, waiting for the line at the DMV, right? <laughs> for a renegade child to straighten up, for news about a biopsy, for a prison sentence to end, for a loved one in surgery, on and on and on. Waiting is no fun. And of course, loss is the hardest thing for human beings to handle. Nothing hurts more than the loss of a loved one or a family member. And besides death, we face other losses all the time, losses that are also painful. Property losses are very painful. Having your identity stolen, losing a promotion, uh, losing data on your computer, even losing your temper is horrible, right? I know it sounds trivial. I know this sounds trivial, but it even hurts. Life even hurts when your sports teams lose. It's one of the reasons I don't miss coaching. My teams in the years I coached were a combined 26 and 4. But I remember those four losses much more vividly than I do any of the 26 victories. When we face loss or waiting, we tend to get depressed, anxious, frustrated. And as people who know that God is sovereign, we can understandably take that frustration onto Him, right? After all, it's what Job did 4,500 years ago, and people are still doing it today. In fact, Job, you know what Job does? He puts God on trial. True story. Open your Bible. Uh, look at Job chapter 31. He's talking about Yahweh, the one and only covenant God. And Job challenges whether God is even fit to lead. Job chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. If only I had someone to hear my case. Here's my signature. I've got to interrupt for just a second. Um, this is one of those places in Job that tells us how old the book is. 
Uh, between between 3000 and about 1800 BC, there, there was a very popular type of treaty called a suzerainty treaty, and, and it always had certain elements that were part of it. Uh, these covenants were between, between people, uh, between different governments. We have many examples of them from the ancient world. And one of the things you'll see is that you'll see the word case used and signature. If you see signature and case used together, then you know that somebody is accusing somebody else of not keeping their part of a covenant. They violated a treaty. Okay, that's what this tells us. It also tells us how old the book is. All right. He says, if only I had someone to hear my case. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent, he's talking about God, let my opponent compose his indictment. I would surely carry it, his indictment on my shoulder and wear it like a crown. I would, I would give him an account of all my steps. I would approach him like a prince. Stop there. In case you don't know him, Job lived a long time ago. As I said, this book has to be over 4,000 years old, and yet it is as relevant as our journals and tweets today. Job doesn't know it. He doesn't know it, but he is being developed by God for great purposes beyond anything Job can see. But that development has not been enjoyable. Job's covered with boils. His family has perished. His investments are teetering, and he has these friends that are pointing at him and implying that it is all his fault. So when Job says, if only I had someone to hear my case, he's clearly implying that God is unworthy to judge or, or God is too indifferent to adjudicate or he's just unjust. As I summarize it in our notes, um, open your worship guide you got when you came in. Look on the left-hand side, my summary statement there, Job challenges whether God is fit to lead. In fact, the text shows Job positioning himself as the more righteous one. He sees himself as completely righteous. By contrast, God is so off base in Job's eyes that Yahweh is the opponent of the righteous. In fact, to Job's thinking, Yahweh is so warped that any indictment God might make should be worn as a badge of respectability. Do you see that? Do you, you know how there are certain people who criticize your work and you take it as praise, right? You, you know the feeling? For example, a letter we received at All the Difference. Um, I'm an atheist, this person wrote, but I enjoy listening to Dr. Broderick on the radio. The history and culture are very insightful, both modern and ancient. However, there's way too much about Jesus in his teaching. If he could spend a little less time on the Bible, it would vastly improve his radio show. Close quote. I kept that as the highest praise letter I've ever gotten. It doesn't get any better, right? But Job's saying that about God's input. He's saying God's input's like that. Now, why would Job say this? What could lead a person to such a backwards perspective? The answer is the same combination that gets us all twisted. Waiting and loss. Loss and waiting. Flip over to chapter 30 for a brief summary of Job's situation. It's just the next page over in my Bible. Job 30, short section, verse 26 through 29. But when I hoped for good, Job said, what came, everybody? Evil. When I looked for light, what came? Darkness. I'm churning within and cannot rest. Days of suffering confront me. I walk about blackened, but not by the sun. I stood in the assembly and cried out for help. I've become a brother to jackals and companion of ostriches. How is that for loss? Everything he hoped for fell through. And look at the decay. You see the decay of waiting? Days of suffering lies, lie ahead. His, his insides are boiling. His outside is decaying, literally turning black and sloughing off from the boils and the medicinal oil and the, and the ashes that they would have put on there. Jackals and ostriches are the only ones that can relate to him. 
Now, the, the prophet Micah, hundreds of years later, makes a similar reference and helps us understand this saying. Uh, Micah notes that, that jackals and ostriches both make really mournful, very lonely cries out in the desert. They make very lonely sounds. One of them does it at night. The other one does it during the day. So what is Job telling us? He's saying that he is moaning all the time. Now, does that help us understand why Job's so upset? Sure it does. But Job's response is not to engage with Yahweh, but rather to put God on trial. Now, he doesn't curse the Lord, but he clearly thinks God is not fit to lead him. We do this as well. Our current culture has become expert in this. Think about it. If anything offends us, anything offends us at all, the person humanly responsible or God Almighty receives our wrath, right? In fact, we, we declare, have you noticed this? We declare that no one is fit to lead us in any way if they so much as disagree with us about anything, right? This is why the hearings for our Supreme Court are such a joke. Right? The hearings for judges in our country are a joke. No senator is ever questioning whether the judge that's under review is a good scholar, rightly able to handle constitutional law. No, all they want to know is will that judge agree with and uphold the senator's personal opinions? That's all they want to know. Now, however valid or invalid those opinions, the hearing is a farce. Same with Job. It's understandable that he's hurting. It's right that he wrestles with and complains with God, but this hearing is a farce. Job's complaint is that God is not fit to lead Job because Job is filled with the absurd opinion that he is more righteous than Yahweh. Now, instead of giving Job the sound rejection that he deserves, God's justice is combined with mercy, unlike Job's. Here's what God does. He sends a friend to Job, a friend who sits with him through all the pain. A friend who listens and listens and then speaks wisely. As we summarize in our notes, Job is answered by wise young Elihu. Elihu has a number of very important points to make, and they are all worthy of our inspection. First one, he reminds Job that God speaks through pain. God speaks through pain. Uh, chapter 33, verse 19, shows one part of this speech. Uh, Elihu says, a person may be disciplined on his bed with pain and constant distress in his bones. Now, the thought goes on, but I want to stop there because of the main verb. The word my Bible translates disciplined is very, very significant. Yutkahet is one of those really big idea terms in the world. This is one of those really significant words. It's a word for legal argumentation. Now, it has many branch meanings, uh, including rebuke and argue and, and set right, but it always carries the idea of discussing something in a legal fashion. How cool is this? Elihu has been listening to Job. He heard all this trial language. He had heard Job wrangle on with his backwards legalese. And now Elihu uses Yutkahet to say, pain, Job, pain is how God often sets things right. By the way, Yutkahet only appears in Hebrew. This is interesting. It's this really big idea word, but it doesn't appear in any other Semitic languages. All the, all the Semitic languages share lots of words. Nobody else uses Yutkahet. I think that's likely because God, Yahweh, is the only one to make a covenant, a law covenant with his people. So it only makes sense to the Hebrews. However, I have a friend, a Jewish friend of mine who lives in Israel, and she likes to point out that Yudkahet only appears in Hebrew and it's feminine in Hebrew. And my friend says, and I quote, this is proof that you should never argue with a Jewish woman. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> 
be that as it may, Yudkehet is really important. Far from a sign of a disengaged God, Yudkehet is a reminder that God is in the fight with us. He is setting things right with pain. C.S. Lewis very famously said through his own really deep hurt, he said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A friend of mine recently reminded me of A.J. Tozier's comment on this. Tozier said, God does his deepest work in our darkest hours. And I especially love Pastor Steve Lawson's comment on Elihu's speech. I I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Um, Elihu declares to Job that God is not distant in our suffering. Job is contented that God will not answer him. Elihu responds, God's right here with us. He's speaking in our pain. He's not silent. And in pain teaches us what's really important in life. Close quote. God speaks through our pain. And in chapter 35, we hear Elihu's second point. You see it atop the right side of our notes. Look to the right side of your notes. People make bad gods. We make really bad gods. Chapter 35 uh, has this point. I want to read it from the New American Standard. I think it handles one of the nouns better. Uh, It says this. Then Elihu continued and said, do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? To understand Elihu's question, we make a quick review of Scripture. Okay, quick review. All you Bible scholar friends of mine, you wonderful people of God, let me ask you this. Are human beings perfect? Let let me put it this way. According to what we read in the Bible and what we see inside and around us every day, are human beings righteous? Yes or no? No. No. And anyone who says otherwise is selling something. All right? Read with me the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all together. For all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Job claims that he's righteous, and that's why his suffering is unfair. How does that claim stack up with Scripture? Does that gel with Scripture, yes or no? No, it does not. Now, we see that about Job, and we mutter, well, <laughs> Thank goodness we're not like Job. (laughs) We don't grumble that we deserve better, right? We don't whine and throw a fit whenever something imperfect is blocking our way, right? Yeah. (laughs) Liar! Humperdinck! We are so convinced of our own perfection that we believe anything that inconveniences us is unjust. Let me show you proof. Here's a proof of our warped thinking. You ready? This phrase, this one sentence, you deserve, is the second most powerful marketing tool in your country. Second most powerful marketing tool in our country. Now, new is still the word most guaranteed to generate sales. That's why everything you buy says new on it, even even when it's not. It says new. But very close behind that is you deserve it. Here's how one marketing guru describes it. You deserve it attempts to market to your blind and overwhelming pride. You deserve it tries to puff up your pride, tries to elevate the ego even higher. Worse, it implies that anyone who says otherwise doesn't find you deserving. Only the nice company and their product are on your side. Close quote. Think this through for a second. Think now. Have you noticed an increase in your culture of people demanding things for free? Have you noticed an increase in that? Yeah. Isn't it likely that tendency is, spread to, is tied to the widespread use of you deserve? I mean, after all, if I deserve it, then why should I have to pay for it? Right? This is what I deserve. So the entitlement illogic is coming back to haunt these companies that appeal to human deservedness. In his very real hurt, his very real hurt over loss and waiting, Job has decided that he deserves things. And since God hasn't given Job what he deserves in his righteousness, therefore God is an unjust God. 
In other words, poor Job has begun to remake God into his own image. This is, this is one of the great battles in human thought. Okay, Scripture says human beings are made in God's image. Now, humans chose sin, and so that image has been defaced, but it has not been erased. By contrast, human beings like instead to make gods in our own image. And since the gods in our image, we, in effect, become the real God. We become the arbiter of what is good and what is not. Elihu goes on to use the height of the sky as an illustration of just what wretched gods we make. Uh, go to verse 5. Look at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does it affect God? If you multiply your transgressions, what does it do to him? Or if you're righteous, what do you give him? What does he receive from your hand? God is imminent. That, that means he's with us in space-time, but he's also transcendent. His, his reach is beyond human comprehension. By contrast, Job can't even reach to a cloud, which is one of the closer things to us in space-time, right? This comparison of human reach versus God's power. When I read this, it brought to mind that scene in the first Avengers movie where Hulk goes, puny God, right? <laughs> puny God. You humans make puny gods. This is why real justice and righteousness only comes from God. Humans are so limited that the typical religion is just laughable. I mean, you, you know this, right? Every religion outside the Bible is predicated on people being good enough to earn eternal life. Given our short reach and our in inherent sinfulness, that's a joke. That's a cruel joke. Instead, God reached us. He engages with Job through loss and waiting. You know what he's ultimately going to show? He's going to show the true meaning of loss by sacrificing himself God the Son to pave the way for undeserving humans to have eternal blessing. This is the point of the whole Bible, in, including Job, to show God's sacrifice so that we can believe on him instead of our puny selves. Mike Mason wrote a brilliant study, I really liked it, called The Gospel in Job. Here's his conclusion. The end of his book, he says this. On Calvary, that's where Jesus gave his life, the thirst of Almighty God for righteousness among men was perfectly satisfied in a manner that did not require human beings becoming outwardly perfect. Righteousness is by faith and not works. Thus, there is only one proper response, freely offering ourselves full of sin as we are at the foot of the cross. We can claw at the sky until our fingers bleed, yearning for holiness, but until we let the Lord Jesus do our bleeding for us, we will never be fully satisfied. Close quote. That's Elihu's second argument. Stop trying to be God, and start trusting the real Almighty. All God's people said? All right. His third point is rather sarcastic. He notes that God is never questioned about undeserved blessings. Uh, verse 9. Go to verse 9. People cry out because of severe oppression. They shout for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one asks, where's God my maker who provides us with songs in the night, who gives us more understanding than the animals of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the sky? This is a really biting point. Everybody grumbles at God when things don't go their way. But no one questions God about all the great things that we see as blessings, right? We have blessings even in the darkness on this earth. We have songs in the night. We're slightly brighter than birds and beasts, and yet no praise comes from people for these daily miracles. It's like, I know this is totally hypothetical, you can't imagine this here in North Texas, but it would be like the owner of a sports team uh, 
who would be really, really quick to complain whenever the referees do something that he sees as a slight against his team. But he never calls a press conference to ask people to come together so he can talk about all the calls that went his way that weren't deserved. You never see that happen. Totally hypothetical, but you might imagine it. We deserve nothing from God. What we deserve is eternal damnation, period. And yet we don't thank God for giving us manifold blessings instead of what we deserve. And that leads to, straight to Elihu's fourth point. His fourth point's uh, down in verse 15 and 16. 15 and 16. But now, because God's anger does not punish and he does not pay attention to transgression, Job opens his mouth in vain and multiplies words without knowledge. Job, like most of us, is engaging in unreasonable babble. The only, the only basis for Job's ability to complain is that he isn't getting what he deserves. But instead of reasonably wrestling with, with Yahweh, Job is just babbling. Hebel, uh, the word we render vain, uh, that's an onomatopoeia. It means it's a word that, that sounds like what it is. Uh, hebel is a, is a vaporous, hebel, breathy sound that comes out of a mouth. To the Hebrew ear, this sounded, here's what it is. You go to the doctor, you sit down, they put that wooden tongue depressor on your, on your tongue, and what does the doctor tell you to say? Ah, that's hebel. Okay, it means nothing. It's just ah, empty mouth. How about that's all it means? It's babbling. It's making no noise at all. It's vain. This exposes a really wretched tendency in humans, and one that we are really wise to address. Let me offer you. Let me offer you two examples. Let me give you a negative of Hebel and a and a positive counter to it. Negatively, Hebel is like none of you, of course, other people who keep rereading their version of an argument. You know, they're in some kind of online discussion and they keep going back and rereading what they wrote again and again and again and they get a little more self-righteous every time they read what they wrote, right? Hebel is the person who makes a whiny, self-pitying post on Facebook, okay? Hebel, it's just babbling, right? A positive contrast to Hebel can be seen in my friend Jerome Lackey who is sitting right back there. Jerome had fairly straightforward back surgery a couple of months ago and everything was well until it wasn't big hematoma developed on his spine after the surgery. I couldn't find one, Jerome, that was L where yours is, so I had to go with T. So we'll just pretend that you have a thoracic problem. Anyway, this, this hematoma developed, and before it could be removed, it put significant pressure on Jerome's spinal cord. And suddenly he couldn't walk and was in intense pain. He had to go to a rehab hospital to learn how to walk again. He's had to deal with very slow nerve recovery, shooting pains down his leg. It has, quite frankly, been an awful season of loss and waiting. And yet, in the midst of all that, in the midst of all of his, his wrangling with God over the pain, here's what Jerome has been honestly sharing from his heart. I want to read to you a few notes from his Twitter feed. I recommend you read all of them. I was going to share a couple from his feed during this terrible trial. Jerome wrote, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord, I plead for mercy. That's from Psalm 30, and his hashtag was, God is good always. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet, no pun intended, in a broad place. Hashtag, God is good always. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for how long, everybody? Weeping may tarry for the night, 
but joy comes with the morning. Hashtag God is good always. What is Jerome doing? He's working his way through the Psalms, making sure that in all of his conversation with the Lord, that hebel, ah, empty babbling, is not pouring forth from his mouth. I pray we all do the same. Like Jerome, we should live out Elihu's wisdom. Look at Elihu's four points. These are life-changing, friends. We should live this out. We should recognize that God speaks in pain. We should take ourselves off of the throne. This does not belong in my hand. We should thank God for undeserved blessings. And we need to avoid, oh my goodness, please avoid empty battle. Now, after all this, Job's answered by God. Okay, first Elihu spoke wisdom to Job. Now God joins directly in the conversation. And chapters 38 through 41 cover this magnificent interaction. One of the most shocking pieces in all of literature. Uh, We lack the time to go through it all today. I recommend you study these chapters. I think they will change your life. Michael Card uh, gave us a good overview about the import of God speaking to Job. In his book, Sacred Sorrow, Michael Card said, by the conclusion of Elihu's final speech, you sense you've reached the end of human wisdom. And if anything luminous is going to be said, it will have to be said by God. Now, I want to give you a short video introduction for your own study. Uh, I want to show you a short video. This is the tone of how I picture God addressing Job when he appears. The tone, I think, is very much like this. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Right? Just like Miracle Max in The Princess Bride, God is saying, Oh, look who knows so much, Job! Ah, There's actually life in this situation. It just appears dead to you. For example, uh, just one little part of God's speech, a part that's rarely studied, so I wanted to grab it. Chapter 39, verses 2 through 4, it's where where God is describing the gestation and birth of animals in the wild. And he says this, can you count the months they're pregnant so you can know the time they give birth? They crouch down to give birth to their young. They deliver their newborn. Their offspring are healthy and grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return. Pastor Lawson, I think, explains this really, really well. He says, Job, who delivers baby animals, you or me? If you don't understand how I work through pregnancy, labor, and delivery, how could you possibly understand this season of pain through which I'm bringing you? It's with a purpose. It's all part of my master design. Just like the mountain calf and the deer deliver at the end of their gestation time, so you'll be delivered from your pain in due time. And then chapter 42, Job, feeling like the goat in this game, gives no answer. Now Job comes out of all this a different person. Elihu and God change him. They change him so much that Job enjoys restoration even as he is still waiting and hurting. Okay, let's read our last passage, chapter 42, last chapter of the book, uh, verses 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, I'll speak. When I question you, you'll inform me. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. Um, There are three amazing lessons in this powerful, passionate response. First, Job knows God is there. And that truly makes all the difference. My eyes see you. That's a euphemism for knowing God is present. 
This is our fellow sufferer, Job, going back to what he knows that he knows. He's going back to what he knew before he forgot about it during all the pain of his loss. Look look at this, Job Job 19. Here's what Job had voiced earlier. Read it with me. Job 19, verse 25, all together. But I know my living Redeemer, and he will stand on the dust at the last. Redeemer there is the awesome Hebrew word ge'el. Ge'el is incredibly complex. It comes from, it's a noun, but it comes from a verb participle that means to redeem, to, to avenge, to, to buy back. But, but get this, this, this first avenger has to be a blood relative. You can't be ge'el without being a blood relative. That's why some Bibles render it a kinsman redeemer. Job knows that God is present in his pain, and he's not present in a distant sense. He's present as a kinsman a kinsman who redeems our unworthy human lives. And that changes him. Job also stops trying to be God. Look at verses 2 and 3. Job reviews his limitations. He focuses instead on God's omniscience and God's omnipotence. Then in verse 6, he repents. That that means he, he changes his mind about his earlier claim of righteousness and his attempt to put the Lord on trial, right? This is the beginning of wisdom. This is how we begin to enjoy restoration with God, even when we're still in the midst of the pain and the loss. Another friend of mine, uh, Summer Sipes, who's a member of our church staff, she has dealt with serious loss and waiting, and she has done a great job learning along with Job. I have asked her to join me on stage for a brief interview, and uh, she is slow coming up, so everybody tell her happy birthday, because today is her birthday. Yeah, we are so glad. Happy birthday, Summer. Yeah, yeah. All right, have a seat, ma'am. Um, many folks may not know this, but uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, you and Andy uh, lost an unborn child. As we, as we walked through all that horror, what practices helped you? What, what assisted you in doing this second point of Job's, of, of letting God be God to you? Um, I think the first thing that we did is we um, really just sat with him in silence, solitudes, meditation, um, and in that time, there was some remembering who he is, but there was also a lot of the capacity and freedom to question, um, to be very angry with, to ask the why questions, and to really wrestle with God in that time. Um, but then partnered with that, um, we also sat in scripture in that silent time because that allowed us to keep us going from going to the place of, well, I don't deserve this, God. It's why me? You know, all of those questions that really don't lead to a healthy place, and they put that focus back on me rather than really um, allowing us to see who he was in this and that he loved us and that he had a plan for us and our hope is eternal even when hard things happen. And I thought of one other thing since Mm -hmm. last service. The other thing was is community, and we really sensed um, how incredibly important it is to walk through these kind of things, not only with God, but also with our community of believers that continue to help us remember who he was as well. Yeah, well said. Okay, so now um, you and Andy are fostering this precious little girl who this morning, early this morning, was holding my finger and staring at me with her eyes, just drinking me up. And I told Summer this morning, I I said, I can't, I, I have to go to work and I can't move. Because she's got my finger and she's looking. It's, it's even worse than when a dog puts his paw on you in size. You know, you can't, you can't move. Um, she's precious. And, uh, and it's precious what you're doing. But your desire is to adopt this girl. 
and you're waiting. So, th so that was the loss of a year ago. Now we're in this period of waiting. How does it feel? What are you going through as you wait for this amazing world of bureaucratic red tape? It actually is a lot of the same things as when you're grieving because um, there's a lot of lack of understanding of the process or lack of, uh, there's still a lot of whys and why nots. And so at the end of the day, we still have to sit in his presence. We still have to sit in his word. We still have to rely on our community. Um, but we have to hold on to his sovereignty that he sees things we don't see mm -hmm. and that he knows things that we don't know. And, and while we're still continually bringing our heart's desire to him, we, at the end of the day, also have to surrender our heart's desire to him, knowing that he is faithful father to take care of our hearts in, in that moment. That's well said. Okay, what would you, last question, what would you pray for somebody in your situation, a loss and waiting situation? What would you pray for them? Um, I, I kind of thought through four things when we looked back, you know, a little over a year ago with our loss and then also these moments of trust right now. Um, again, they're very similar, but the four things I came up with was the first one was really um, pray for eyes for someone to really know Jesus through the pain um, and not, I think, dwell on him rather than, um, than their, the hurt. Um, I think also praying for a heart that really is okay with authentically wrestling through the hurt. Um, sometimes we want to shove that hurt under a, a rug, and that's not helpful either. Our Father is faithful to wrestle with us because yeah. he loves us. Yeah. Um, and he's also trustworthy in that. Um, I think also the ability to grieve um, alongside of the ability to feel joy because our joy isn't contingent on our circumstances. And sometimes we try and separate those two things, grief and joy. And I know for Andy and I walking this path a year ago, it taught us how to handle both of those at the exact same moment and that they aren't um, antithetical to yeah. one another. So I pray that um, for someone to, to be able to see that. And then finally, um, I really think uh, just the, the strength to grow and to really see God more deeply. There are things that Andy and I both learned, not only about each other, but about our Savior, mm. that I don't know that we would have learned otherwise had we not gone through the necessary difficult moments. Yeah. He grew us up. Um, things I had taught and taught about and fully believed now had legs to walk on because um, the pain challenged, are you going to really, is that really who I am? And the answer is absolutely yes, it was who he was, and he was faithful to us. And so we're grateful for that. Well said. Let's, let's pray for Summer and Andy right now, shall we? Father, I really love the picture Summer's given us here. Job began it. I, now I see you. We pray for eyes to see. Eyes to see just how awesome you are. We pray for hearts that are willing to be real, sanguine, wrestle with you, be honest with you, and find you engaging with us imminently. We pray for arms. I, I think of it as arms because you talked about two things that seem in opposition, but they're not. Joy and sorrow really can go together, and they do. And we pray for their capacity to see that and enjoy that, and we pray for legs, legs that run closer to you, that draw closer to you, that engage with you. And praying all that, we present our request that winter is in a very short time that's the baby's name, folks, is Winter. How awesome. That Winter and Summer and Andy uh, would be before a judge having her last name made Sipes for the rest of her life. We trust you and present that request. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you give Summer and Andy a hand, please? Thank you. The reason I wanted you to hear from Summer is that like Job, she's enjoying restoration with God even in the loss and waiting.
This is especially seen as Job enjoys a new depth of relationship. Listen again. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I heard of you by the hearing of the year. My eye now sees you. Therefore, I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. Here's what's fascinating. This is very significant. Your book of Job spends only a few verses, I mean, maybe five verses on Job's circumstantial restoration. His circumstance restoration doesn't even, that's not even the point and it's not for us either. It's fine. It's great. We pray for that. That's wonderful. We, we wish for that, and God wants us to ask for good things. That's fine. But that's not the point. The point is that even in the loss and the waiting, he enjoys a new depth of relationship with God. How many of us have experienced this? You, you, you've spent the night crying. You're aching with your heavenly daddy all night long. I mean, it's just joy is not there. The morning hasn't come. And then, and often it is really about morning time, suddenly there's a moment of ridiculous peace that comes over you. You, you feel yourself drawn so close to your heavenly daddy that there is, there is a joy there, even though nothing has changed. Anybody ever experienced that? You've had nights like that? Yeah, I have too. I have two. All right, let's close with one last observation. This comes before anything has changed in Job's life. A couple of days from now, it's going to be June 19th. It's called Juneteenth in Texas, where I live. Job's engagement with God reminds me an awful lot of our black Christian forebears in Texas. If you don't know, Juneteenth was the date when the, when the black slaves in Texas learned that the U.S. government was guaranteeing freedom of all slaves. All right? That's certainly worthy of celebration. Amen? But... But, get this, even before that, before they were ever free, physically, our black Christian forefathers were engaging with the Lord. In their slavery, in their waiting and their loss, they were continually finding restoration in Yahweh. We see it in their songs, we see it in their letters, we hear it in their testimonies. We need to be like that. So bring this home to your own life. Ask yourself right now, ask yourself, what are my pains? Upon what am I being forced to wait? Think about it. Think about Elihu's brilliant four points. How do these convict me? Do I recognize that God speaks in pain? Do, do, do I take myself off of God's throne, start trusting Him instead of looking so often at my self-righteousness? Do I thank God for undeserved... Let, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Do I... Do I thank God anywhere close to the number of times that I complain about what I see as undeserved pains? Is my praise of undeserved blessings anywhere close to my complaint of undeserved pains? Do I avoid empty babble? Do, do I hear God's instruction? Do I live as if he really is in charge? Do I recognize that he brings life? Oh, look who knows so much. He brings life through things that I view as death. 